you're like doing your puppet shows with your parents and like and then one day you're like hey i'm moving to iceland to work for nickelodeon i'm like what hi this is sari and you're listening to the secret art project podcast creativity mental health and spiritual health are deeply connected domains of life after spending years working with rock stars and filmmakers I decided to get a theology degree. Since then, I've been cultivating my own creative practice, and experience has convinced me that exercising creativity can help us realize who we're supposed to be and manifest a better world. So join me as we talk through the process, interview experts, and get a little weird along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Secret Art Project podcast. I'm Sari Martin Concepcion, and this is my first episode. And I'm a little under the weather, TBH, but I'm really excited to just get this launched and get this started, get this first episode out into the world. And I've thought about starting a podcast for a long time, and I always feel everybody does this, thinks about all the judgments that might be passed upon you if you do something new and you know, it's just become cliche how many people start podcasts nowadays. But the real question is, is it the right thing for me? And I think it is. I love having an excuse to connect with people and interview them in that more formal setting and to sort of like draw wisdom out of people who are have different experiences than me, have different kinds of artistic expertise and share them with everyone else, share them here. I think podcasts can be a place to build a community from. Podcasts have made me feel less alone. And so, yeah, that's why I'm doing this. And the other reason is because as I record this, I'm about to launch a crowdfunding campaign in support of the next film that I want to direct. I'm in pre-production on a film called The Winemaker. It's a short film. It's what's called a proof of concept for a feature idea I have, and it's about a winemaker with a cosmic secret, let's call it, who is deciding if she's going to finish the year's vintage before her enemies come for vengeance. It's a sci-fi film. It'll take place at a beautiful Oregon winery, and the wine culture of the Pacific Northwest is inspiring. If you're a person who likes wine, <laughs> there's a lot of great wine up here. And particularly, I've connected with a few female winemakers up here who are just super cool. And I love how, you know, their craft is almost, it's an art, it's a science. It connects them to nature and the earth in a powerful way. And that was super inspiring for me when I was writing the script. Crowdfunding is not something I'm inherently excited about. I don't know if that's the case for anybody who's ever crowdfunded anything. But I'm actually finding a way to reframe it so that I can find joy in it. And one of those ways is, as I've already said, I love connecting with people. and. The last few years, I've been very hibernate-y. I've moved states. I live somewhere where I don't have a ton of friends and connections from Los Angeles to Portland, Oregon. I had a baby. She's a toddler now. And it's just been, it's felt more like an insular time of my life. But that's not my natural state. I like to feel connected to a lot of people. I like to find ways to collaborate. I like to talk about my ambitions and hear about other people's ambitions. And this will give me an excuse to do that. And of course, asking for money is part of it, but that's not the only part of it. And they don't have to. They don't have to. So. I have done a lot of work to get to that point. I meditate a lot. (laughs) 
And one day I was talking to a friend about how I procrastinate on tasks that I need to do for my film and trying to kind of get to the root causes of procrastination and think through those things. And she was like, can you imagine if you were working on a short film for someone else? Like say you were producing this, someone else's vision, someone else's project. And I just like started to tear up immediately because I was like, I knew that if it was for someone else's project, it would all be done right right now. It would already be done. And I teared up because I thought it's so much easier for me to believe in other people than to believe in myself. And I just knew that that was true. And, you know, of course, there's other part of it, too. Like putting your own art into the world, it feels very vulnerable and it leaves you open to criticism or for voices to come in from the outside and confirm your imposter syndrome, say, oh, you're not really a filmmaker or you're not a very good one or whatever. So, yeah, like I said, a few things that have helped with keeping the negative voices at bay is meditation. And I do, lately I'm into, I've done mindfulness meditation, TM, transcendental meditation, guided meditation. Yeah, right now I'm doing this, it's like a self-hypnosis meditation where, which sounds way crazier than it is. It's just like getting yourself in a very deep, relaxed state. And it sort of feels like, you know, before you fall asleep, if you're like, you're in kind of a semi-dreamy state, you sort of get yourself to that level of relaxation. And then there's like a guided meditation that will take you through imagining different scenarios and remembering stuff that happened in your childhood. And it's all stuff that I would have made fun of myself for a few years back. So if you're making fun of me right now in your brain or your heart, then I I don't blame you. But <laughs> like the proof is in the pudding. If you do something and it's helpful, you do it, right? It's helpful, not harmful. And so that kind of meditation has, I'm pretty systematic about it in that I will journal about something specific that I want to work on. Like, why am I scared to crowdfund? What's scary about that? Why? And I'll like journal about that for a while and then I'll do a meditation and deal specifically with that question. Another thing that's helped me as I'm about to crowdfund is improv. I, if I was still living in LA, the improv scene there is kind of intense. There's so many actors in LA and they take it really seriously. And that's kind of intimidating. And then there's people who like can't, don't have an off switch for improv. (laughs) I'm sorry if that's you, no judgment. But here in Portland, there's a few cool comedy theaters and I signed up for an improv class and it's just helped me not overthink things just go for it. You know, I don't even have time for the, you don't have time for the doubts. You just kind of like go. And so improv in that sense, I don't even care about performing improv, like doing improv shows. I just, I love taking the classes. It feels like it's good exercise for my brain and, and it gets me in a good creative space. And as kids, I watch my daughter like play and she doesn't even think about what she's about to do next. She's just in a state of play and experimenting and doing things and not judging them. And it's really hard for adults to get in that space. So if there's a way to find yourself in that space or to get yourself into that space once a week or a few times a week, it is very useful. Which is something that I talked to my friend Raymond about. You're about to hear from from Raymond Carr. And he, the headline, Raymond is a very accomplished puppeteer. That's sort of been his primary identity (laughs) vocationally is as a puppeteer. And he is also one of my very good friends. He has encouraged me a lot. He believes in my creative skill more than I believe in it. And so that's been, that's a nice kind of friend to have. According to his IMDb bio, he is an African-American filmmaker, theatrical director, designer, and puppeteer. His career spans more than 15 years. His award-winning films have been accepted into Oscar-qualifying film festivals all over the world. He's worked with The Jim Henson Company, Nick Jr., Cartoon Network and Adult Swim, IFC, BBC, Discovery Channel, Vice, Facebook TV, and a bunch of other commercial and theatrical stuff. And he's super talented. 
He's based in Atlanta. He and his partner, Gabby, who's incredible also, are very involved in local politics and just wonderful proponents of what is good and true. And I'm excited for you to hear this conversation with him. Enjoy. This episode's brought to you by winemakermovie.com. Again, that's winemakermovie.com. Please visit the URL, watch, pledge, and share. I really appreciate it. It's kind of funny to interview you for podcasts. Everyone should know that you and I are like best friends. Like, <laughs> like I've known you for how long now? 30 years. 45 years. <laughs> we are actually coming up on our 30-year anniversary. <laughs> so gross. Um, uh, so we, if people are it? like, why do they talk to each other like this? Or if they feel like we're being mean to each other, I think that just is good context. <laughs> yeah. And you have been pretty intense to me, honestly. I, I just felt like we should talk about this. <laughs> just right off the intense. bat. Like, you've been intense uh, to me at certain points in my life because you've been very inspirational in the way you've pursued your career goals and stuff. Like, you mean very hardcore, I would say. Huh? Frivolously. Oh, mean. come on. It was uh, definitely not in vain. I think you're an inspiration to many people, actually. But, like, for me, I have taken more, like... I don't know, safe and practical steps. And a lot of it was me. I mean, now I'm realizing how much was out of fear and trying to deal with blocks, as they call them, like psychologically. But I've always been like a writer. And every now and then I would like send you something and be like, hey, here's a short film script I wrote. Like, what do you think? I remember one particular email where you were like, the analogy is you said that like, you're like someone like an Olympic athlete who's got like the body of an Olympic athlete. And every now and then you do like a backflip and you're like, what do you think? <laughs> That's what you said to me. Like I was like, oh, basically like wasting talent by like not being as active or like, you know, yeah, you can write stuff in your bedroom and it's awesome and has a lot of potential, but you also don't do anything. <laughs> That's the vibe I got. But there's been a lot of emails. And sometimes I I I have returned that tough love to you a couple times, but sure. not not too not too tough. Uh, well, I think one I, time I, I told you your metaphors were unclear or ambiguous or something. <laughs> I don't know. We we just uh, can be pretty frank with each other, I think. Well, that's that's funny that you said that because I I don't remember th that me saying that, but I completely agree with me saying that. <laughs> you uh, agree with your past self? <laughs> yeah. Well, look, this is this is what I the reason why I say that is because I don't think that I have a lot of natural talent, and this is not just like some sort of like humble brag or like whatever. I I struggle a lot. I struggle a lot with being creative and just putting my ideas out there and making them come to fruition and everything like that. And I notice that when I see people who have natural talents that are able to draw or write or do mm -hmm. music and all that kind of stuff, it, I get jealous because I know mm -hmm. when I see other people who are doing it so effortlessly, I, mm -hmm. I am trying so hard. It does become like if I had that. I would be able to do a lot more, even though it's not entirely <laughs> true, because I think that if I was more naturally talented, I probably wouldn't appreciate it as much as wouldn't I wouldn't work as hard. Yeah. 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 So I think I, that, yeah, it is this thing where, I mean, I think everybody's creative. Everybody has the ability to be creative. I don't believe that there are creative people and people who aren't creative. It's, it's a natural thing. The fact that we dream is evident to that. It's <laughs> creativity and the skill sets that we have are ultimately muscles that we have to exercise. And if you don't exercise them and they atrophy, then they will, won't be as good as others. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, talking about coming up, the first time that I was like, that's kids, cool, I want to hang out with her, was when you wrote Baby Says Eat Me, which was this short story that you wrote in <laughs> high school. But did you get in trouble for that story? I don't think so. I think just some people were weirded out by it. I didn't show it to that many people, though. I remember really close together, I wrote these two stories that were basically one page, handwritten in like an, a spiral notebook. One of them was the day the penguins died. I can't remember what happened. I don't know why I was such a morbid kid, though. Like, I don't know what I was 
not in touch with. You know, you like do your art and you're not in touch with like what's going on with you. (laughs) But I did one called The Day the Penguins Died about like all penguins suddenly dying one day. (laughs) And then I wrote Baby Says Eat Me, which is also like pretty dark. And yeah, so you liked that. You picked up what I was putting down. (laughs) Well, and that was I immediately latched onto that and I hadn't fully realized my tone and my, you know, sense of artistry myself. I didn't know what I liked, really. At least it wasn't solidified. And that helped really helped me understand that. And that was the first play I put on was a version of, of Baby Says Eat Me. Center for Puppetry Arts, Experimental Puppetry Theater in Atlanta, Georgia. Yes. And that was my first paid gig. It was an adult show that was like a, a short play showcase. And the, the the story was about this baby who was the cutest baby in the world. And everybody loved the baby. And the one thing that people liked more than the baby was food. And so the baby got jealous of food and decided to, he couldn't speak, he taught himself the word eat me. And he went around trying to tell everybody to eat me. Eventually he tried all these different tactics, tried to cook himself, tried to season himself. And his dad like got him drugged up on pills. I can't, was that, was that in the original that story? That wasn't in the original story. You okay, added I, that. That was my limitation. Yeah. <laughs> well, the dad, cool, in my though. version of it, it the dad like tried to medicate the kid. Um, <laughs> And then eventually the kid ate himself. Right. That's and it ends with the baby, like, starting from his feet and, like, gnawing on his feet to, like, chew himself like the, what's that snake called that's eating its own tail? It's kind of like that yeah. kind of vibe. A snake that eats his own tail. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> We're intellectuals. <laughs> it went really, well, really well, and it got me quite a bit of notoriety. And there's even, I had that's a big, had a kind of uh, an exhibit at, the Center for Puppetry Arts, they put together a whole wing of the museum. And the center is the largest puppetry theater and museum in the in the country. And they have a big Jim Henson wing and all this yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, it's really nice. And you go yeah. in there, even if you no, don't think you're like a puppet person or whatever, but then you see like Ernie and Bert and you're like, it, something awakens from your childhood and you're yeah. like, this is fucking awesome. And the puppets from the labyrinth and Dark Crystal. and then Yes, all those puppet- things, yeah stop motion stuff from Tim Burton stuff and you know all over the place so they put they had an exhibit about me last year and I had I did like a little retrospective video and Mm -hmm. people were even asking me are you going to show stuff from Baby Says Eat Me that's so weird (laughs) crazy I wrote that when I was 14 that's insane I think the reason why I've been so motivated is less than just like blind ambition and more. I've had an emotional safety net. My parents are not rich by any means. In fact, we were very lower middle class, if not poor throughout most of my life. But I always knew that I had the ability to fall back on them. And they always encouraged me. And I knew that I was never going to be, you know, homeless or or completely broke if, if I did bust the bank. So... And they've helped me out financially over the years here and there. And I've done it for them as well. I've helped them out over the years as various levels of success for myself. I think that that has a lot to do with it is I did grow up in a house that... Super supportive. Yeah. They didn't necessarily like overtly encourage my weird creativity because they were not... (laughs) They didn't (laughs) live in that mental space, but they definitely empowered me to do whatever the fuck I wanted spin up, uh, on the yeah. creative thing. And I know that yeah. everybody has that. Yeah, your parents are really just amazing people. So, yeah, like you talked talked about XPT and how that was really big for you, but tell the story with more context in terms of why you're a puppeteer, <laughs> among yes. other things, and a director. I am, um, so yeah. Tell um, your story. So I lost a bet one day and they said, hey, do you want to devote your life to puppetry? Now, <laughs> I, I, often, I often think about like when people ask me how I got into this, I think of like a cu- couple of absurd explanations and then the actual explanation and like ask them which one do they believe is true. But yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was homeschooled by a church clowns. That's the headline. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. That's that is the, the real. Clown. Yeah. I mean, what's a church clown? Is, is that, yeah. What? What part of church clown don't you understand? It's a clown in church. <laughs> I feel like that's the most straightforward explanation. Okay. Yeah, so. no, we grew up in a mega church. So the church I grew up in had 14,000 members in it, which is a big contrast from the church. Church in LA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Southern California. And the church, there were like around a thousand kids a Sunday in the auditorium that I went to. That That's probably, I think it was just like somewhere in the neighborhood of like, 
second to sixth grade, there were like a thousand kids. And my parents were basically trying to keep the butts in seats. And allegedly, legend legend has it, my parents say that um, John and I, my brother, challenged them to make Sunday school so fun that if the kid had the choice between going to Disneyland or going to Sunday school, they would go to Sunday school. There's all these like... There's some ambition there. That That's where you got it, right? Yeah. Go big or go home. (laughs) Well, you've seen all this shit and I don't really know how much of it with with (laughs) retconning a lot of this. But so yeah, they decided, I can't remember, they met somebody at a church conference who did clowning stuff or something like that. And they just got some books. This is pretty internet, obviously. And they just started doing it themselves. They had some sketches and children's songs. And then they started recreating their own stuff. And we kind of built a library of sketches and bits and songs that we created. And so my brother and I did costume stuff initially. And then we realized that we were in front of people. And that's when the peer pressure started coming towards us. And we realized that this is fucking weird. And so we decided we wanted to help out, but we... It was like, can we be behind the stage? And that's why we started get, doing puppetry. So you're like, you realized it wasn't cool. <laughs> yes, exactly. We realized that doing not stuff costumes while your parents are dressed as clowns wasn't in South Central LA. For your listeners, despite my white boy accent, I am black. And yeah, I grew up in all over the place, but my formative years were in Southern California and in Inglewood and the uh, Redondo area. So yeah, we started and we, we came to this novelty act and like all these other churches that were connected to this megachurch that we were part of wanted us to come out and do their conferences or revivals or whatever. And then we started traveling and at the height of it, we were performing about 200 times a year. And yeah. <laughs> and then we, we got, my parents got a, a job offer to move to Atlanta to be children's pastors of another mega church. I guess the pastor's wife saw my brother and I at some conference and thought that we were very well behaved. And they said that we wanted you guys to work for us. So we moved to Atlanta. The homeschool group that we were met in was I discovered later in my homeschool life. I mean, I I was homeschooled my entire life because you you went to preschool, didn't you, or first grade? Uh, they put me in a private Christian kindergarten for a few months, and the teacher she was always yelling at us. She ripped up my homework in front of me once because I did it wrong, and like, I was fine. <laughs> so my mom was. I think my mom was traumatized by that, and you know, and people in our community were homeschooling, so that's how it started. So it was very. Yeah. It was like a few months of private school, but. Right. So I never had a, I didn't have a consistent homeschool group that Mm -hmm. we really liked, but I Mm -hmm. had like a handful of friends and whatever, but the homeschool group that we met in was the first time I had like, like a social circle. Yes. Yeah. Social circle. Like my brother had been going there and he had friends and like their younger siblings were my friends. It was, it was just the most traditional version of that social structure that I never had. So to leave all of yeah. was extra upset you know yeah 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 i felt like i finally found my people right and then they're going right and and it was and obviously this was you know in the late 90s early 2000s where atlanta is like cool now where there's a lot of stuff happening but it was not yeah there wasn't not. really popping off like it like was back then well like it is now mm-hmm. plus we weren't living in it we weren't moving to atlanta we were moving to union city georgia hey. which is like rural south side atlanta so yeah. so yeah. it wasn't until you got involved with the center for puppetry arts that you started to be like well maybe this is all right <laughs> well that was one of the saving graces because yeah. we knew about the center before we moved and yeah. that was kind of the thing and it's like my parents were like well they have the center for puppetry arts maybe you can get involved in your stuff there <laughs> and I thought, that's what i did we that we stayed we had this our first place we stayed was this extended stay hotel in the middle mm-hmm. of Midtown Atlanta, mm-hmm. which was a couple of blocks from the Center for Puppetry Arts. And so every other day, my brother and I would walk to the center in like our polo shirts and khakis. And they would let us volunteer there, like folding, stuffing envelopes and like doing, you know, museum docent stuff. We tell people where the entrances and exits are and all that kind of shit. Yeah. And we were just so well behaved and everybody was like, who the fuck are these Stepford Wives children? 
just constantly around here. What, do <laughs> you have a few I, reflections, at least about, this is kind of a big meta question in the middle of your story, yeah. but just Please. what what is it about puppetry that lit you up, do you think? That was, what what boxes did that check for you? I was very shy. I mean, obviously every teenager, most teenagers, I should say, don't have an affinity to be, put themselves out there and just perform in front of everybody. And I had, a, I had that bug, but I was just so shy and scared of everything. I had a lot of social anxiety in that way. And puppetry, mm -hmm. I joke that puppetry is theater for the timid. So <laughs> it enabled me to create these characters and these personas and these stories without having to like literally show my face. Mm -hmm. um, and also was enabled you to make worlds and go to places that you couldn't necessarily with your physical and embody characters that you couldn't necessarily with your physical body. You know, I can be, I can perform a character that is a 12 year old white girl and everybody believes it if I have the <laughs> puppet, and, you know, the audience yeah. is, makes that agreement. So I can be anything I want to be as a puppet yeah. and a performer and also create these worlds and all that kind of stuff. So it, it, to me, it's like live action animation. It has all the benefits of this world building concepts without all the baggages, human beings being in front of the, 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 the puppet and all that kind of shit. So, yeah. yeah. So it took me a while to expand my mind around what you were doing with your career. Right. Because... You, some really big stuff happened after that, after your experience at, you know, w working and interning at the center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I started doing shows there and and then I got a job for the Nickelodeon show, Nick Jr. show called Lazy Town. Um, yeah, that was a real what the fuck moment, right? Like, <laughs> holy, <laughs> because all of a sudden. <laughs> You're like doing your puppet shows with your parents and like now at this museum in Atlanta. And then one day you're like, hey, I'm moving to Iceland to work for Nickelodeon. I'm like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, yeah, we shot it in Iceland for Nick Jr. And it's crazy now. We talk about being old. Like uh, it was 03, 04, I think. And, yeah. And the um, kids that were watching that show are like adults now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's really, really fucking upsetting. Like time, if you is, were, time is very fucking like, upsetting. We were a preschool <laughs> show, so ours was like four to six, ages four to six. So if you were four to six year old and two three, like you're a grown ass adult now. So yeah, yeah. So I, I lived out in Iceland for a year and that's when you came to me. My, I visited you. With, yeah, it was the last week, one of the last weeks I was there, I believe. It was towards the end. Yeah. It feels yeah. like I I think I was 21. That sounds right. Right. Yeah. And or 22, maybe um, that was a wild trip. And I remember I almost you didn't must make my flight. I, almost, I, th I think I was 21 or something like that because I just freshly graduated college. And I remember I forgot my I think I forgot my passport when I went to the airport. And I had to run home and get it and like almost missed my flight. And I was wearing moon boots that I'd bought at a vintage store at the airport, which are super comfy and fluffy. And I didn't even put my shoes back on when I went through security. I was just carrying them. And I ran to the gate to try to make the flight. I made the flight and I realized I only had one moon boot under my arm when I got there. Like I had dropped one along the way. And I remember someone yelling out for me and I didn't turn around because I was not missing this one. <laughs> anyway. So did you come there with one shoe? No, I mean, I had other shoes in my bag, so it was fine. <laughs> but these were my cool ass moon boots. And I was, I was super <laughs> bummed about losing them. It's funny, the stuff you remember. Anyway, yeah, we had a great time, though, hanging out in Iceland. That was really a cool experience. And I was yeah. super into Bjork, too. So that was cool. Not like we hung out with Bjork or anything, but she's from there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because um, it was the winter time. Oh, yeah. And it was Just... light out for like three hours a day or something ridiculous like that. Right. It's crazy. Right, yeah. And I said, why um, does your apartment smell like poop? And it was because I wasn't used to the, there's like sulfur and sulfur in the yes, tap water. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All super the water, strong. the tap water <laughs> smells like rotten eggs. I did back then at least. But yeah, we had a blast. I remember you took me to a concert the first night and someone offered us Coke, I think. Or, yes. And you're like, that's never <laughs> happened to me. <laughs> yeah. He was like, I was like, like, like my beautiful little cocaine. <laughs> I think it's, I might have started with like, do you like the party or whatever? And then I was like, what? Wait, what? What's happening? And then he, he clarified. But I was like, whoa, Raymond, Iceland's crazy. And it was, 
it was like a folk concert. It was a singer songwriter of some sort. That sounds right. Yeah, it's, it must have says more about you than me because I had right. They're like, oh, this chick's from LA. She looks like she likes to party. I was uh, there was that night where I had a little too much to drink and I was walking through the streets saying I'm from Los Angeles like an like an asshole. I will get into all right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, should, yeah, yeah. Should, yeah that's <laughs> crazy stories of early twenties on their yes. own. Yeah, you Europe. were really let's just say you were really spreading your wings in a, in a, <laughs> you're you're becoming yeah, a gro- had, you were um, becoming a grown up. I had an Icelandic <laughs> girlfriend then, and and you were just, we were just, we had a lot of fun partying. Good memories. Oh, yeah, because that was the first time I drank alcohol, because I was sober. Right. The, this was I also the time when I, when I was still, like, transitioning out of the church. Yeah, yeah. And I was still, like, used really deep in my Christian roots. Right. And so I, I spent the entire year not drinking, which I, I, that is something I regret. Well, to a certain extent. I, I probably... I missed out on a lot of opportunities just because I was still very sheltered and I didn't want to. Right. You know, I had a night. Yeah. Around. There was a lot of naivete that followed me in my 20s that might not have yeah. been there. But and I think that was the whole thing. I was like, yeah. if you come to Iceland, I will drink for the first time. Right. That was the deal. Yeah. We, we drank absinthe. So you were like, yeah, we were like, yeah, we went hard. But yeah, I remember you being very composed and me being like, what? You're like, I feel <laughs> fine. <laughs> You can edit whatever you want out of this story. Anyway, I won't go any further. Okay, than that, let's was, get back to your story. Yeah, 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 now yeah, that yeah. we've explored. So, I- so yeah, when I when I came back from that, I you know just going back to the whole creative process and just the trajectory of yeah. the creative career, I had in this mindset where there was no access to television characters, television puppetry, because all you saw was Sesame Street and the Muppets and all that kind of stuff. And that's such an abstract concept. It's like. Yeah, you're, it's like being a pilot and you are thinking about wanting to go to the moon. Like, yeah, that would be cool, but I have no fucking idea how I would ever do that. And then all of a sudden, they, some, somebody's asking you, hey, you want to go to the moon? I'd be like, right. holy shit. Yeah. yeah. So I suddenly had access to uh, this new world. And that, I was you must have learned that, so much. Like, yeah, I mean, so educational. The puppeteers yeah. I was working with had been on Sesame Street and worked with the Muppets. And one of them was a co-creator of Crank Yankers. And I thought, well, this is it. I'm in and this is all I'm going to do. And I'm going to be on the Muppets. I'm going to be on Sesame Street and I'm going to be a millionaire. And <laughs> well, it, like expanded your, your imagination around doing that as a job, like more so than the center could. Did, but. So what happened was that I wasn't asked back on the second season, uh, even mm-hmm. though I was told you're going to come back. You're great. Everybody was great. Whatever. Blah, blah, blah. Well, There's a couple of reasons. That. Why, yeah, I was That's pretty, that was pretty, I went through a dark period just because I was banking on that idea. Yeah. I was honestly spending my money like I was going back. I'd gotten yeah. my, my own apartment in Atlanta and it was like way too overpriced when I got like a short term lease because I was like, I'm going to be in back in Iceland in about six months. Oh, man. Uh, and they told me I wasn't coming back. And it, it was a couple of reasons. Some of it was political. Some of it was the fact that I was pretty young and they had a couple other people that were older that they wanted to bring in. And I won't get into details, but it, it just it sucked. But it just was one of those things where you think you, you've made it, but that yeah. is not the case. And I've right. had that idea come up several times i call it the myth of making it like the idea is like oh i did it now i'm, I'm good it's all smooth sailing it's never that oh so yeah but he like yeah. in showbiz will say have a story like that though like where it seems like it's so close or it is actually happening and then the bottom drops out yeah or it's just, or it's not what you thought it was yeah yeah or it's just not a straight trajectory i came back to atlanta and i mm-hmm. was really trying to figure stuff out so the great thing that happened to me was that I was introduced to a group of friends at a local theater called Push Push Theater, and they had a film group. I came back and I came out of school. Like I dropped out of college to go to Iceland and mm-hmm. I went back and I was originally going to go for theater, but they closed the theater program at my school and all the people who had done theater that were puppeteers were doing the same jobs I was doing. I was like, well, then why the fuck would I get a job, a degree in theater when I'm already doing that. I'm already doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So I switched to film. And I, at the same time, I was still doing theater stuff. And ironically enough, it was 
theater that got me into this film group where it was a group of people who created this program called Dailies, which is legendary now. And this group of filmmakers are still all of, well, a lot of them, they're my core group of friends. Many of the people who came to my wedding who were my friends were from that group of people at the film group. Yeah. And Dailies was born out of this theater and it was a group of filmmakers and we make short films and we would give each other challenges. So we would have a challenge for the quarter where everybody makes a short film inspired by this picture or everybody makes a short film that's inspired by this fight scene. Or we did like the Dogma ch Challenge, which was popular in the early odds, Dogma 95, which is minimalist kind of cinema verite kind of thing. And then we flipped it on its head and called it Catma which everybody makes a film that is all spectacle-based, where it really pushes the spectacle and still weaves in a story. He would propose a concept for the challenge of the quarter or the, of the six months through a quarter. Yeah. You had to have all these rules for it. And then only a handful of filmmakers would get selected to direct, and the rest would be a part of the crew. And at the end of this project, you would have your scripts read and people... And then because it was a theater, we were, had a access to all these actors that just wanted to be in front of the camera. So we would have these actors play with us, and then we would have script readings, and then we would shoot, and we would just share equipment, and then we would watch our rough cuts and give notes for each other. Honestly, that's really where my ability to critique really came through, is because all my friends are, that's how I know Dave Bruckner and Zoe Cooper, because we would all just carry, like in a, in a heartfelt way, we would tear each other's projects apart. <laughs> but you had the relational currency to like do that, to like, right. like everyone well, trusted each other? To a certain extent, but it was also like, there's strangers in there, but it was, mm. our mantra was, dailies is a safe place to fail. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was never, any criticism was based on, well, some of them, the best ones were not based on just oh, this is just my opinion and, and this is like, I think it should be blue instead of red. You have to justify your critiques in it as well. So it was all in the effort to make the product better. And so Daily's produced, there's a movie series called VHS. It's a popular yeah. horror movie franchise. And we produced some short films out of that. There is a film called The Signal that went to Sundance and got a bunch of awards that came out of dailies and dave bruckner who's a big time director now he directed the movie the ritual the new hellraiser movie as well and a bunch of other stuff and zoe cooper who is a dear friend of mine she's a wga screenwriter as well yeah so that's really where i i you know sharpened my teeth creatively and had a community to really build upon and because we were all film nerds and film critics and theater nerds and theater critics, we were able to compliment each other. And I did puppetry, which made me stand out. So I was the one that was had something unique to add to their films. So the films I directed had a voice that was usually somehow fantastic or some sort of science fiction fantasy element to it. And I can back it up with some sort of visual aesthetic to complement that. So that's really what pushed me forward and where I had this strongest growth spurt creatively was dailies, as well as doing experimental puppetry work at the Center for Puppetry Arts. And then from there, I got on a show called Walking with Dinosaurs, the Arena Spectacular. And you can't just see that twice. A couple times. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think so, one in like the Valley and one in New York. Did I come to the New York? That's right. Show? Yeah. New York was the other one. Yeah. yeah. So we just um, happened to be in New York at the same time. Right, yeah. right. So Walking with Dinosaurs was the world's fourth largest touring show. Uh, we traveled with 75 people, 25 semi-trucks, and yeah. I was... You were living like a rock star. You were put up in <laughs> hotels. You were better than a rock star, kind of. Like, you were getting fooled well, around at different cities. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. I remember you got promoted wild. while the show was running. And yeah. you were basically remote controlling dinosaurs from a sound booth. This is another creative lesson journey in my journey. Is I was 26 and I was basically head of puppetry in this. And Walking with Dinosaurs is a $25 million show. They have life size dinosaurs roaming around this arenas. And we performed it at Madison Square Garden and Staples Center. And, and we were in North American tours. So we did Canada and we went to every city in North America, such so Canada and Mexico. I did 800 shows over the course of about two years. And I was promoted to the head of puppetry. So they were all animatronics. We weren't in the suits. We were controlling them remotely with this sophisticated robotic arm from the, basically where the sound booth was. And so 
I was 26 and I was the youngest puppeteer in on the cast. And I was, I got promoted to be in charge of everybody and on my, on the puppetry side. And that was rough, partially because I didn't really know how to manage personalities politically, partially because I was basically middle management because we were doing the same show over and over again. It was mostly just about maintenance and scheduling. And the resident director, the person who like was in charge of everything was a nightmare person. They didn't barely remembered anybody's names. He couldn't give notes properly and made choices on whim. And because I was middle management, I was basically in charge of executing their whims. Right. And so it was a pretty dark time in my life just because it was this thing where I was like, this is literally a dream job. I couldn't even dream of a job better than this. I mean, the bracket forest I operated was 40 feet tall. See, it's the dream. And each one of them <laughs> cost a million dollars each to create. And yet I was miserable every night. I was drinking heavily. It was the most, um, alcohol, the most I dr- have mm-hmm. still in my life. And it was really rough. I feel uh, like. As you're learning the skills, especially like if you're like trying to learn a craft well, like be a great writer or be a great puppeteer or whatever, I feel like there should be a class or something that is also how to deal with people. (laughs) You don't get equipped to deal with political stuff or how you're going to have to deal with opposing, you know, trying to be a negotiator sometimes or deal with people's drama or like when someone's mad at you or when you supervise people a lot of us just get thrown in the to the deep end on that kind of stuff and it's like a soft skill you have to kind of learn on your own and it's it can be really depressing yeah. especially if you don't have the personality that's natural for that kind of stuff or yeah i feel like people are becoming more aware of that yeah. sort of yeah. thing managing personalities and also just Honestly, trying not to be a dick or and those who are dicks are being more held accountable for being a dick. Yes. Trying to dick Some of that is political and like me too. And like the toxic masculinity that used to be normal is like not normal anymore. And the part of it, I right. think, is like psychology information becoming more mainstream, like mm-hmm. mental health stuff or trauma, stuff like that. It's just like, you know, people are learning about that stuff from their Instagram feed now, which I think is a good yeah. thing. Like people just yeah. like, okay. I'm not just taking this person acting like a dick as face value. You realize there's like a background and context there and you can think about it helps you kind of navigate those things. But it still doesn't come super naturally and it's hard when you're just like, oh, I'm just trying to do my job. And now I have to learn how to manage the the desires of the people who are supervising me with the people I'm supervising. And that's stressful. Well, that's the thing. Nothing in this life is a meritocracy and particularly the arts. There is no version of this where if you're just good enough, you will do, you will be promoted and you will do better. That's just never the case. And it is a myth. I mean, honestly, and it's a little bit of a a meritocracy. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit of a Western myth as Mm -hmm. well. If you are in a position of power, you deserve to be because you are the best. That is the myth. Whereas the reality is if you are in a position of power, there are lots of extenuating circumstances to get you there. I learned that at an early age and I appreciated that in also the context of what it meant for me when I did have success. I wasn't able to just say I am successful because I deserve it because I work the hardest and I'm the most talented and all that kind of bullshit. No, there's still a lot of randomality to anyone's success. I mean, We all know people who are way more talented than us who are not as successful as us or who don't have it tightly together. And that is just a lot of other. It's just a lot of factors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like your story is so interesting. There's so many twists and turns. Like, let's try to get let's like fast forward to kind of the recent past and like what you're doing now. And you're doing a lot more directing. And let's think. Hold on. (laughs) Well, you know what you're doing. You've been focused on yeah. joy, right? <laughs> You know what you're doing. So, I mean, I, I look, I, this is a story I've told a lot. So uh, fast forward, I'm going to get back to Atlanta. I had to reinvent myself and I really leaned into the filmmaking portion of it. And so I became a production designer and art director for television, film and commercials, as well as doing the theater stuff. And then about seven years ago, I got a chance to work with the Jim Henson company. And yeah, and this I got so a, a work 
Yeah, it's the same year. It was a crazy year. 2015 it was the same year I met what I started dating my wife. It was the same year that I started working with the Henson Company. And that's and so I, I came out to L.A. and same crashed on I your couch divorced. for a couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the same year Sarah so got divorced. <laughs> my first marriage ended. <laughs> To be on your couch while yeah. you were processing <laughs> all my, of that Yeah, processing that. Said so my first solo apartment in a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I started working with the Henson Company, and now I work on and off with them throughout the years and have been really leaning into... Uh, well, you were a primary cast member on a, on a PBS show they were producing called Splash yes. and Bubbles. Yes, I was one of the stars of Splash and Bubbles on PBS Kids. Dumps and now the puck with their sh- yeah. fish yeah that's the complicated to explain <laughs> the first i remember that your first day of work though that you were actually in my bathroom practicing the song you were supposed to record <laughs> which is the song called i don't know what i'm doing yes the song is i don't know what i'm doing i'm just doing it and i think everyone should go on spotify and look up splash and bubbles from the soundtrack i don't know what i'm doing I'll use it. Maybe I'll edit it into this episode. So I'll cut to yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Practice it was very appropriate because it was literally the first thing before I before any cameras were rolling. I had to record this song that was, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just doing it. Which, oh my gosh, that just hit me like so, so good. Yeah, because you were doing this very... <laughs> That yes, just hit me now. it just hit me. That's such a beautiful poetic thing. Yeah. <laughs> Because you were literally using this type of technology that was co- t- completely new or very new. And you were learning, like you were doing, you you basically were like in a robot booth. <laughs> and you had like buttons to like make this fish I, I character love move its eyebrow. And I, you sound yeah. like a crazy person. I know. You sound no. like a crazy anyway, person to write this. <laughs> we don't need to explain the technology because it's not what this show is about. But oh, it is very complicated. And the, you can put a, I'll give you a link, put in your okay. show notes. Okay, great. I'll link to it in the show notes, as they say. But yeah, it was very complicated. It's basically yeah. motion capture puppetry using yeah. animatronic interfaces. Great. Yes, exactly. Um, That's exactly what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> and you, yeah, and you were like, what if I can't do it? And I was like, you can do it. <laughs> and then you had to go sing. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just doing it. Okay, it's very catchy. My daughter knows this song. Does she? Um, (laughs) Yeah. So that really kind of started you down a whole another path and became a big part of your career trajectory. You started doing, you did the Puppet Up, which is the adult improv show with puppets that Brian Henson produces. Yes. Wait, you took me to a barbecue once during that time that was like at Heather Henson's house or and like Kevin yes. Cl- Kevin Clash was there, who's the voice of um, Elmo, for those that yeah, don't yeah. know. Like that was that felt very big time. <laughs> that was yeah, that was in the Hollywood Hills at Jim Henson's daughter's house, Heather Henson. It was our graduating class, actually. We went through a series of workshops. So just to backtrack a little bit, there is talk about the privileges that I've had and part of the reasons why I don't take as many of the successes as I do attributing them directly to me is because I know that there's a lot of fortunate accidents that happen there. So when I first started working at this with the Henson Company, they invited me to a workshop. So they don't just cast you. They don't just say, oh, you're a good puppeteer. You should audition for this thing. You have to go through a workshop at the Henson lot in Hollywood, basically learning their style of puppetry. And to even get there, you have to submit an audition tape to be accepted into the workshops. So I sent in a tape. I guess there was about 500 people that auditioned, sent in audition tape. Of that group, about 25 were selected. And we had to be in LA for about 10 weeks workshopping. I was still living in Atlanta at the time. And Gabby, my wife, and I had been dating for only a couple of months and I was like all right babe well I'm going to be in LA for about 10 weeks to do this workshop that I don't know what it's going to get me yeah they they weren't promising you a job afterwards or anything yeah no they were definitely they were in fact saying that this does not guarantee you a job yeah in fact we did this whole thing at the end which we kind of had to put together some sort of character packages where we created three characters and it three voices and all that kind of stuff. And they were like, this is not an audition. 
This is not an audition. We're going to keep this on file and use it for <laughs> casting later, uh-huh. potentially. But this is not an audition. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's you taking yourself out of your life, out of your home, and just taking the risk on it. But it seems to like, yeah. have paid off and been really important. But I mean, it, it's, I was I wouldn't have been able to do it if it hadn't been for um, I had family in California still. I had friends, you out there, too. I was able to make I had a place to, to crash, you know. Yeah. So, Helping yeah, I friends. definitely have the privilege of those things because not everybody has that, obviously. But yeah. I look, I think at the end of the day, I've always had a sense of urgency in my life. Is, I mean, to get a little serious, my uncle, who I never met, committed suicide before I was born. My father's brother about the same age difference between my brother and I. And my grandmother died when I was very young, which is not wholly unique, but it did imprint on me a sense of urgency in my life, which I don't think I really fully understood until later in my life. The idea that it was like, I got to, I might not live past 30, you know? You I had this abuse. awareness of death and mortality that... Right. It was sort of always there. Yeah, as a as a form of motivation. And uh, I, I think that if I've had any kinds of talents over the years, there's, it's just that I've had a lot of talented friends, yourself included. And whenever people have come to me with ideas or just I desires to do things, I've always tried to be the one to encourage those ideas because... You just you don't give me any chances, especially when you're younger, especially yeah. when you're younger, before you have all these extra responsibilities that come along Tell me about it. <laughs> getting older. Yeah. And it's like it's not it never gets easier. You think no, that definitely. when you're younger, you think I'm just going to, you know, once I'm going to be able to get to a certain age and things will be easier and I can just do it then. It's like that's just not how it works. So, yeah, creativity. Do you still feel like do you still have like that sense of awareness of death or do you think about death a lot or like? That's I mean, that still I, part of your life. I think so. I mean, I'm probably more so now that death is sooner, closer. <laughs> yeah. but I mean, look, the reality is that I've had like several of my friends die. There was a year where I had like three really good friends. Well, not all of them really good friends, but a couple of really good friends die within the course of like a couple of months, completely unrelated. All my age Jeez. died completely randomly. And we all know people now who were our age that we grew up with who are no longer with us. And it, it, when you're younger, the idea of depth, hopefully, is an old man's game. But as we are the age that we are now, there are, you know, I'm in my 40s, so it's like you got just have to be so much more aware of your own body and, and your relationship to everybody else and to appreciate those around you because you know that they're not always going to be here. So I do have that sense of urgency, especially now because we're talking about you know, starting a family and all that kind of stuff. I know that my time is going to be even more limited when that happens. There's only so many opportunities you get to shoot your shot. A, I do think that you can't waste your time waiting for the project you are doing to become perfect. It means a cliche, but perfection is the enemy of the good. You know, my saying is it's better than good. It's done. Yeah. Uh, I remember you (laughs) telling me that you're like, I remember you saying, like, you're going to just make it and it's going to not be as good as you want it to be. Like, you have to be okay with the thing you're making actually kind of sucking, but you have to do it in order to get to the next thing, the next better thing, or to learn the things you're supposed to learn or whatever. Like, Especially as as an artist, whether you're a filmmaker or particularly with filmmaking and and theater, if it is a project that you know is going to take a lot of effort to get off the ground and to do, you got to do it just because... Unless you are a savant genius, the first dozen projects you do are probably going to suck. You know, you got to suck out and you got to just learn from it. And you also have to not be precious about it. That's my other thing. It's like the idea of being precious with anything you do is such an enemy to creativity. Mm -hmm. This is something that my wife and I, we realize about ourselves is that she is a perfectionist. And she wants everything to be perfect. And I want things to be good. I want the things to have quality, but I know it's never going to be perfect. I also know that if I don't produce something 
I, it, it, there's a very likely chance that it'll never be done. And nobody is going to care about the project as much as you do at any step of the game, no matter how much money you have. There's, even if it is your best friend, your, your spouse, your partner, who is right there with you, they're never going to care about it as much as you do. So it's ultimately your responsibility to get it across the finish line. And that's just something you have to deal with and contend with. And you can't take any of that personally. You can't take any of that personally. You just got to be like, this is my baby and it's my job to foster it and to make it go. Yeah. You, your relationship to ambition has changed over the years. I think you, you've talked to me a little bit about, you used to see it as a good in and of itself or like something that everybody should have. Yes. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your relationship to the idea of like ambition? Well, I mean, look, I think it stems from the idea of ambition is not a means to happiness. In fact, it also like is oftentimes the antithesis. I mean, the am ambition and to get a little Buddhist on you, ambition is desire and yeah. desire breeds misery. Like if you want something and you are constant and is constantly out of the reach, it will make you, it has the tendency to make you miserable. But at the same time, ambition is what makes this world go around. I mean, that's how we've been able to create anything. And maybe that's a little bit of a Western capitalist mindset, but to a certain extent, there is truth to that. So that I think that if you are a person who has a life that you are happy with, that is a version of success. If you have a family that you love and that you just go to work, working at a, a job that you don't give a fuck about and you just come home and enjoy your life with your family, that is a version of success that is just as valid as somebody who is performing in front of thousands of people on Friday, every Friday night. You know, yeah. that's why when people say that I am successful or like refer to me as successful, I kind of balk at it a little bit because to be a thing, you have to negate or acknowledge that someone else is not. And so for me to say that I am successful means that there are people who aren't successful. And I generally think that a lot of other people are more successful than they are giving credit for. So I do think that ambition, if you want to be successful in a field, a specific field, ambition is important. If you want to be a director or a musician or a puppeteer or any kind of artist, and you want to be successful as that artist, you need ambition. But if you want to be quote unquote successful at light, you don't necessarily need ambition. Or that ambition can be utilized or redefined to mean something else. I'm thinking about like, oh, it seems like it's never good if you're like, I will never be happy in life unless I reach this goal. Right. It seems like you have to find contentment and peace within you and that ambition separating the like contentment and the like being able to enjoy life from the ambition in some sort of healthy way yeah and also like the idea of your calling like what you were supposed to do or what you're meant to do I, you may not remember this but i think i was when i was with henson and during the workshops when i was crashing at your couch we were hanging out and i was talking about like being a little pessimistic about it the, what I was going to do and whether or not I was going to work out and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, you know, if it doesn't work out, then I will just, I'll try something else. I'll, I'll retire. I was joking about retiring. And you said, well, that's so sad because you're, this is your calling. This is your, what you're meant to be. Like God called you to do this kind of stuff. And I was like, that's the saddest thing I've ever heard. The idea <laughs> that I have one thing that I am destined to do. And because it's been preordained or some shit is like, <laughs> so depressing like i believe that they, my brain is wired in such a way that my ability can, and my ambition and my ability can be applied to a host of different skill sets like the ambition yeah. i have to be a successful director can be used to be a successful you know architect or it, and just run a small business like any yeah. kind of thing like my wife is incredibly creative and successful because she is using her skill set as a creative to be an innovative business owner. She owns yeah. a bridal gown boutique and the techniques that she uses for her store and the way that she interacts with her customers, customer service is a big portion of what has made her, her store successful. Like 
that is born out of the fact that she was a performer. Like she used yeah. to be a performer and she used to be a dancer. And that's where she decided to transition into this business aspect of it. So I, I don't believe in a calling. I don't believe that in destiny. I don't believe that we are supposed to do a thing. I think that we have a skill set, whether that is nature versus nurture. Um, we kind of went over that a little bit. But I do think that whatever skill set that you have to achieve the success that you have in whatever process that you're pursuing can be applied and translated into a host of other skill sets. Yeah. So I want to say that I don't believe that anymore, that my beliefs have changed and that I think that. So how I think of it now is that calling is not a static thing. It's a process that happens over time and can change. And that idea. So I think that part a great thing to do in life is to try to become the best version of yourself. Like what who would you be? If you were raised in a perfect world where you were perfectly loved all the time and perfectly resourced your whole life, who would you have been? And that's an imaginary world doesn't exist. No one grows up in that, that world. But we can try to uncover who that person would be as we like take care of ourselves, you know, do therapy, try to pursue a healthy lifestyle, engage in healthy friendships and relationships. So who are you? That's different for everyone, right? It. Who is the best version of you and what activities are most aligned with that best version of you? So those things are happening in relationship to each other. And as you go through life, you are kind of prototyping. You can do this kind of mindfully or not mindfully, putting yourself in different roles, different environments and sort of experimenting. And when now I might say to someone, if they're thinking about doing a certain role or leaving a certain career, I might say to someone like, that sounds more or less aligned with who you are. It seems the best use of your skills would not thrive in this environment or whatever. I wouldn't say like, yeah. you're missing your calling. I'd say, you know, something more like that. And if there is a God, then God is helping lure or call us towards those things. That's my perspective now that would be like, hey, Sari, like. <laughs> Maybe you should try, like, I feel like that that you can, like, tune yourself into the universe or whatever you want to call it to give you hints and you can discern those things. People can believe whatever they want about well, that. Look, I mean, I think it's also like just a, a cumulative skill sets, you know, the idea of if you were a writer your whole life and now you decide to change that. It's like, now do you want to, you want to be a gymnast? It's like, well, maybe there's a different path that is. Okay, so you're not a fiction writer in, anymore, but maybe you can be a copywriter. Maybe you can be working ads. Maybe you can do working not grant, you know, yeah. for nonprofits. All these yeah, sorts yeah, of yeah. things are in yeah. the accumulative skill set that you have acquired over the years just from these past lives. Right. You know? I mean, but you can also make a full drastic change in your life too. Something I wanted to try to get to was, I'm calling the segment What Works For You because obviously mm. you don't, want to tell like oh everybody should meditate for 10 minutes every day but like maybe you do and that's what works for you okay so a couple things i do think that improv is incredibly useful even like i do improv now i'm on a, a team with the jim henson company and that's pretty much the only time i do improv anymore i was doing it like five days a week and at, at one point in my life and i'm not like that much of a hardcore nerd my brother is definitely more in that space but i do think that if you are interested in being a creative, improv is very useful because it does help you expand your mind to just let, to not think so hard about different things you're going to say, things that you're doing, just opens up your mind to your imagination. So even if you don't take, go down the rabbit hole that much, just take an improv class and that will help. All right. Just for fun, name a couple things you're into right now in terms of like movies or tv shows what are you geeking out on right now tv shows i'm a big sci-fi nerd the expanse yeah. is all time's favorite sci-fi show actual religion now is just that show. yes it is the expanse <laughs> is my religion i i will if you want to next time i come on i will just tell you about the expanse and how awesome it is oh what i'm really into right now is columbo columbo is is kind of a brilliant show that's never the format of columbo has never been recreated because 
the whole premise is that you see the murder and the murderer happen at the beginning of the show. And the rest of the show is just Columbo sucking with the guy. <laughs> Columbo figures it out like halfway through the show. And then he's just fucking with the, the murderer for the rest of the show. All right. Thanks for giving me an hour and a half of your time. I thought got some wonderful yeah. stuff there as always. I'm grateful to know you. Yeah. You too. Are you crazy though? Is it over? Thanks for listening to the show. If you ever have a question for me, Sari, or for any of my guests, you can feel free to go to speakpipe.com slash secret art project. The link is in the show notes and leave us a question or go ahead and email us. You can find my email at secretartproject.com. As a reminder, this episode is brought to you by winemakermovie.com. That's winemakermovie.com. Go to the link, follow, like, share, and tell me what you think. I'd love to hear from you. My theme music is by Omniflux. The song's called Lawless Flawless. Thanks to Omniflux for letting me use that track. And until next time, keep working on those secret art projects. <laughs>